Healthcare Today is produced and paid for by the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to WDEV at RadioVermont.com. Healthcare Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, a weekly exploration of health and wellness topics affecting Vermonters. Brought to you in part by Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Age Well Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. Northfieldpharmacy.com. And Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com, employee owned and locally committed. Your participation is encouraged. Call with your questions, 244-1777 or 877-291-8255. Good afternoon, I'm Dr. Lewis Myers, and this is Healthcare Today. One basic truth is that we all have to breathe, which makes our guest today especially important because she is a pulmonologist or lung specialist. She is also trained in critical care medicine and in the diagnosis and treatment of sleep disorders. We will be discussing common pulmonary problems such as COPD and asthma, pulmonary fibrosis, and sleep disorders such as sleep apnea. And finally, we will look at COVID pneumonia and how it affects the lungs. My guest today, and I'm very pleased to have her here, is Dr. Veronica Yedlovsky. Dr. Yedlovsky uh, is a native of Hungary and attended medical school in her native country. She came to the United States to do her residency in, in internal medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. She then did a fellowship in pulmonary diseases at Columbia University and Harlem Hospital Center. She subsequently moved to Vermont and worked at both Copley and later North Country Hospitals up in Newport. And as of October, she is at Rutland Regional Medical Center, where uh, she is our chief pulmonologist and also heads lung cancer screening for the state of Vermont. In addition, she has participated in medical missions to uh, Central American countries such as Honduras and Guyana. Dr. Yedlovsky, welcome, and thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Let me just ask you, um, uh, you've made quite a journey to get here um, from uh, Hungary, of course, and then to one of the largest cities in the United States or the world in New York City, and then up to a very small and very chilly Vermont uh, cities of Newport and Morrisville, and finally to Rutland. Um, let me ask you first, in terms of the medical school training you went to in Hungary and then coming to the United States to do further residency and, and uh, fellowship training, what, what was that like and what was the difference in terms of the way medicine is approached in those countries? Uh, well, um, it's quite a bit different. I have to say that the postgraduate training in this country is a lot more intense and just a lot more work and experiences packed into those years of residency programs here. Um, so I was very pleased with that. It was uh, it was hard work, but I felt like um, when we graduated, we were really well prepared to step out in the world and and start practicing. Um, I would say the other um, difference is in the approach between patients and their physicians. In Hungary, it's still a bit more of the um, 
paternalistic kind of approach where the doctor tells the patient what they have to do and there's really no discussion or um, no exploration about what the patient's goals of their care are. And I think that there's a lot more emphasis on that aspect in this country. I think we've moved quite a ways in that direction in the United States in terms of uh, it being a team approach between patient and, and uh, provider. The um, You must have seen everything in, in training in New York City at Mount Sinai and then at Harlem Hospital Center. Um, and then you went up to Vermont, uh, some of our smaller areas, such as uh, Newport, Morristown. What was that transition like? Well, that was very interesting. So I, I started my internal medicine training in New York City kind of in the midst of the second AIDS um, wave. And so I saw a lot and a lot of patients with AIDS and complicating pulmonary diseases and um, and a lot of tuberculosis related to that as well. Um, up in Harlem, uh, gunshot wounds were pretty much on every patient's chest x-ray. There was a bullet somewhere. And uh, when I moved to Newport, it was quite interesting to look at the images. And um, first of all, Almost nobody had HIV or AIDS, and also the you know gunshot wounds was just not existent. So it was a different way of practicing, um, and just different diseases. And now you're at Rutland Regional Medical Center, and I mentioned that one of your uh, assignments at this time is to uh, coordinate or head the lung cancer screening for Vermont. Let's talk a little bit about that. What are the basic uh, foundation of lung cancer screening, and and are there any new recommendations in recent years? Well, uh, yeah, thank you for that for that question. That's really my passion. Um, so, lung cancer screening um, is an accepted um, screening uh, program since at least 2013-14, and this is based on a large scale study that was done in the United States prior to that. Um, the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial that showed that uh, people who are either active smokers or who've quit within 15 years uh, between the age of 55 and um, 80 had a 20% mortality reduction with yearly um, lung cancer screening compared to their peers who were not screened or screened with just chest x-rays. And so that led to the United States Preventative Task Force to approve lung cancer screening as a modality with um, a low-radiation dose CT scan. And we've been doing those for the last seven, eight years. Um, The number of patients who are participating is gradually increasing, and we're definitely finding lung cancers at much earlier stage and much more treatable and curable stage. So this program has made a huge impact in survival uh, for patients with lung cancer. I want to also let our listeners know our phone lines are open. If you have any questions or about lung problems or pulmonary problems for Dr. Yadlovsky or any comments, please give us a call at 802 244 1777. Again, that's 802 244 1777.
Dr. Yanilovsky, when I started training some 30 years ago, um, it was a very nihilistic approach to lung cancer. We did not have as ready access to CAT scans, so it was mostly chest x-rays. And what we found was uh, occasionally there was the lucky find or uh, that you might find a lung cancer early, but most times if you if it was enough to see on a, on a chest x-ray, often it had already spread. So there's been a, a real... Uh, see change in the way we approach this. And I'm really glad that you're talking about this. I think many of the older physicians or other providers out there who have not trained recently uh, may not be as aware of this um, and may not be referring their patients as frequently. But uh, but uh, you're seeing some increase in numbers in terms of the referrals. Is that correct? And also we should talk about insurance because CAT yes. scans are not not inexpensive, and um, people will want to know, can I get this covered by my insurance? Yeah, so this is uh, part of all the um, um, regular cancer screening that are approved um, through Obamacare, so this is free. There should not be any co-pays or um, any payment due from the patients for getting lung cancer screening, just like um, the same situation with mammograms and colonoscopies for the appropriate patients. This is so critical because lung cancer is one of the cancers where, although we've made some progress in terms of treating the actual disease, we still have a long way to go, and the mortality is quite high if it's caught at a later stage. So catching it at an early stage, as you're talking about, is absolutely critical. Exactly. So um, uh, when we catch lung cancers at a later stage, which is, you're correct, when we used to do any kind of chest x-ray and accidentally find a mass, very seldom were we lucky that it was an accidental finding of a tiny, small little mass or nodule that was curable, and most of the time it was already um, metastasized or spread and large and with very poor outcomes with five-year survivals ranging somewhere in the 20 to 50% range. Now with the uh, advance of the CAT scans and the regular yearly screening, we're able to find nodules that are 7 or 10 millimeter in size, and if they start to change and grow just a little bit and we get on it, um, early stage lung cancers uh, with appropriate therapy could have a five-year cure rate in the low 90% range, high 80%, low 90% range. Obviously, that's a huge significant difference, especially when we consider that lung cancer is still the most common, uh, the most common fatal cancer in the, in the United States. Um, in, in other screenings, and we've talked about this in prior programs, prostate cancer, breast cancer, there is the concern that we may be overdiagnosing and causing anxiety with what are called false positives. These CAT scans now are very, very sensitive. They can pick up even tiniest little things. Has that been an issue in terms of lung cancer screening? Absolutely. So we see a lot of lung nodules, which just means a little lump bump on the on the lung. They are usually very small, like four, five, six millimeter in size, and um, ninety plus percent of them never actually develop into any cancers. The good news is that if we follow these over time, just by the growth pattern of this, 
we can tell pretty confidently if one of these nodules have um, a cancer's potential or are they really not that significant and perhaps are never going to cause any problems. In the original study that led to the approval of this modality, about 30% of the patients had some sort of an abnormal finding on their CAT scan. And, but the good news is, again, more than 90% of those were non-cancerous in the end. The U.S. I should add the uh, the U.S. Preventive Health Services is a very conservative uh, organization, and they uh, if they often decline to endorse a number of other screening tests. But when they do say that this this helps, this works, then it it actually means something for sure. Yeah, and actually, um, right now, so right now, the recommendation is to screen based on the original study patients with. Um, um, uh, more than 30 years of smoking at least a pack a day um, who are either active smokers or quit within 15 years and between the age of 55 and 80. Um, different insurers might draw the line somewhere between 77 and 80. Medicare draws the line at 77, So, but in that neighborhood. But there has been a um, recent large-scale study from Europe that was just published a year ago or so, and they found very uh, very similar decline in mortality, in lung cancer mortality rate, in fact, even more so than the original study. They found a 30% mortality reduction with lung cancer screening, but uh, both of the studies actually interestingly found that women were helped even more. Um, than men with this modality. And their um, enrollment criteria was down to age 50, so there is right now um, a discussion whether or not our screening criteria will be changed and the smoking amount will also possibly go down to 20 years a pack a day from 30 years a pack a day. So I think the take-home lesson for for patients, both men and women, who have been smokers is... Uh, if your provider doesn't bring this up themselves, you can f- please feel free to tell them, "Hey, doc, what do you? What about screening for lung cancer? Because we do have effective ways now in many people to screen for this and to prevent uh, people from dying of lung cancer." So, thank you for continuing your work, and um, let's let's uh, try and prevent every case of lung cancer we can in Vermont. It's a terrible disease. Let's talk about a, another very common uh, lung, prob- lung problems, pulmonary problems, which include COPD, which is also called chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, but most people know it as COPD, and emphysema. Now, these are most commonly seen in smokers, although not all, always. Uh, people who are non-smokers can sometimes get these diseases. But would you tell us a little bit about what is COPD, what is emphysema, and is there a difference? So COPD is a larger category of um, different obstructive lung diseases, and one of them is emphysema. The other one that most of your listeners probably know is chronic bronchitis. Um, These are, as you said, most commonly associated with significant amount of smoking or smoke exposure. Secondhand smoke exposure can definitely cause this. In uh, the developing world, 
um, a lot of the homes are heated with um, in the house open fires and the smoke from that can even cause COPD. But in emphysema, what happens is um, that the tiny, tiny little air bubbles in our lungs that are um, the final um, end of the airways that um, help our oxygen transfer through that uh, little air bubble into the blood circulation, they burst into each other and become larger and larger bubbles and have a harder and harder time to allow the oxygen to diffuse through and get into our blood circulation. In chronic bronchitis, the smaller airways from irritation from smoke tend to um, get inflamed and swollen and the little mucus glands in the wall starts to um, produce a lot more mucus. And these are the patients who wake up in the morning and cough and cough and cough and then throughout the day just cough a lot with that, um, with a thick mucus production. And emphysema? And emphysema patients also tend to have some um, cough, but most of the symptoms are the wheezing and the shortness of breath and a lot of the times the chest tightness. And I mentioned not everyone who is a smoker uh, or is or is susceptible or around a lot of pollution. Not everyone uh, who gets COPD or emphysema is a smoker. Are there certain conditions, uh, genetic or otherwise, that can lead to these con- diseases? Yeah. So there is a uh, fairly well-known genetic condition. Um, which is called, it's a long name, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, but basically what happens is that um, normally when we're born, we all produce a protective protein that protects the lung from all kinds of um, inhalation injuries, from infections to smoke to any other injuries. And the genetic condition is that some people either don't produce this protein at all or they produce some but not enough, well, their lungs are much more susceptible to any kind of inhalation injury and cause earlier age lung damage, including emphysema, and more severe lung damage. Should everyone who has emphysema be tested for this, or do you sort of try and limit or narrow the testing? It's a relatively easy test. Uh, now we do it with a cheek swab, the, the um, genetic test. Um, the American Thoracic Society has specific guidelines who should be tested, but kind of just a um, rule of thumb, I usually test patients who have either very severe obstructive lung disease or early age lung disease or disproportionately severe lung disease compared to how much they smoked, or there is some sort of a red flag that um, this is not kind of a run-of-the-mill type of emphysema. As I said, it's not a particularly difficult test. A lot of the times people don't get tested because sometimes the um, uh, care providers don't necessarily feel comfortable addressing the results when they come back if they're abnormal. Um, but I think that if if one has a high suspicion that something like this might be a problem, then it's worth testing. And if it comes back positive, then seeing a pulmonologist would 
um, definitely help sort out what needs to be done about it. What can you offer someone who has alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency? So if if the person has such a, a genotype that they really don't make that protein at all, this is now available as a medication. Um, it's a human recombinant um, protein that is an infusible medication once a week, but it basically replaces the protein that the body isn't making. So again, we've, we've just touched on another area where p- patients can actually ask their providers if they have emphysema to consider at least testing them for this genetic uh, disorder, which is now treatable. Um, you yep. mentioned this, uh, another, along with smoking, an, another reason for that people get chronic lung problems, and that's pollution. And as we see around the world, uh, major cities and even in, in rural areas, uh, uh, various forms of, of uh, pollution or um, insults to the lung. Can you talk a little bit about that? What are some of the worst offenders in terms of uh, lung disease and pollution? Well, any kind of um, factory exhaust um, and and even car exhaust pollutions are um, definitely increasing the risk for chronic lung diseases. When people are exposed at a young age, it contributes to the development of asthma as well as, again, chronic lung diseases. Um, there are also sensitizing agents in larger cities, such as, um, you know, exposure to um, cockroaches in, uh, in uh, apartment buildings, um, increases the risk for childhood asthma. And, uh, and then the other thing that I think in Vermont we need to be very careful about is radon exposure which mostly increases the risk for cancer, including lung cancer. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. I, uh, that was not on my list, but that is very important. Talk a little bit more about radon. What is it and uh, what is the damage it can do and how do we test for it and, and ameliorate it? So radon um, usually gets, my understanding is that it gets trapped in the, um, the granite slobs around the northeast and especially in basements or uh, parts of the house that's built into um, a, a solid um, uh, part of the ground where they blow out a little bit of that granite, uh, there could be radon exposure. And over time, it increases the risk for different cancers. Um, there are mitigating uh, modalities that can be done and builders know how to do that, and uh, one can actually rent a radon detector uh, meter that you would put into your basement for, I think it's three days, and then return it back, and they'll they'll give you a readout about the measurement of, of uh, radon exposure. You know, I've seen some huge numbers in terms of the lung cancer uh, attributed to radon. Do you, do you concur with those that it can occur? Thousands well, and thousands just, of people. It does increase the risk um, significantly, and especially chronic long-term exposure. The other thing that I see in uh, in the state of Vermont quite often, which again I was not at all exposed to in Hungary or in New York City, because in in our state we have had asbestos mines that were working mines until the mid 1990s, 
asbestos exposure and asbestos-related lung disease, especially when uh, the person was also a chronic smoker, um, has about a 20-fold increase in lung cancer risk. And we have a lot of national standards now on asbestos um, as well as radon. So I think we are making some progress here, even though it's uh, such a a widespread uh, pollutant. Um, We just have a couple minutes more before our break. Uh, I'm going to have you talk a little bit more about the typical COPD patient when you come back. But let me just briefly ask you about cystic fibrosis which is um, often diagnosed in childhood. Um, and can you tell us very briefly, what is cystic fibrosis? How do we diagnose it? How do we treat it now? So cystic fibrosis is um, another genetically-based um, lung disease, and um, it basically affects the chloride channels um, in the body, not just in the lung, um, but in the pancreas and other organs as well. Um, and um, it basically is a disease of the ion transport through membranes. Um, the diagnosis is made by um, a sweat test. Um, it's a very particular test that uh, uh, most of the uh, centers do around the state. Um, certainly uh, uh, pregnant women are tested for also for um, uh, the genetic mutation for cystic fibrosis, so they would know if their children need to be tested. And in terms of treatment, um, there is a huge improvement in treatment, um, and it's a very specific and narrow field of pulmonology that I don't interact with a lot, but my understanding is that other than cleaning these um, cystic airways um, and keeping them clean and mobilizing the mucus and treating any infection uh, very aggressively, now there are actually genetic modifier medications that can be used. And ultimately, if the disease progresses to a a severe stage, lung transplantation is an option. Yeah, and it it is primarily a a disease of... uh often northern Europeans, of which there are quite a few in Vermont, or northern European ancestry, and we are making tremendous progress in the treatment of cystic fibrosis. So we're going to be back in about two minutes. We have a lot more to talk about with Dr. Yedlovsky. Stay with us. Dr. Lewis Myers back with the second half of Healthcare Today. We're speaking with Dr. Veronica Yedlovsky, who's at Rutland Regional Medical Center, pulmonologist. Our number is 802-244-1777. So, Dr. Yedlovsky, you know, Vermont, unfortunately, still has a relatively high percentage of, of citizens who are um, smokers. Uh, and, of course, they're at risk for developing COPD or emphysema. When, when a patient comes to you, usually they were referred to you as a pulmonologist. Usually they have fairly severe lung disease. Tell us about a typical patient and how you will, would, would approach their care. So for patients with COPD, um, the best um, strategy for them to slow down progression of the lung disease would be to stopping smoking. So we spend quite a bit of time on smoking cessation counseling and discussing goals and what previous modalities worked and what didn't work and what is the patient willing to try in the future. 
what are the barriers of them from quitting smoking and try to kind of come up with a plan that would work for that particular patient. And then beyond that, uh, we assess lung function by a test called pulmonary function test, uh, which really tells us um, how severe the obstruction in the lung is. And um, based on that and based on the patient's symptoms, we could then talk about uh, different medications. These are usually inhalers, or at least in the beginning of the uh, treatment, um, we can use short-acting inhalers that the patients can use um, if they're short of breath just on exertion, then they can use these short-acting or otherwise also known rescue inhalers to maybe five minutes before scheduled exercise. As the disease progresses or gets more severe, we use more maintenance inhalers. They are usually bronchial dilators. They relax the airways. They let them open up bigger and allow the air to kind of flow in um, uh, a little bit better. There are also inhaled steroids um, that help with the airway inflammation if there is an inflammatory component. In COPD, uh, more recently within the last few years, there's more data showing that uh, clearly not every patient needs to be on an inhaled steroid. Um, in fact, it may increase um, the risk of pneumonia, so it really has to be a carefully selected subgroup of patients who need that medication. There are, um, as the disease gets more severe or the patient has more symptoms, there are other uh, modalities that we could try. There are other medications. Some patients end up chronically on antibiotics um, who have very frequent flare-ups. And then there are the non-medication um, um, treatment options. And again, uh, pulmonary exercise rehabilitation is um, one of the proven efficacious ways of slowing down disease progression. And I should also uh, mention one of the underused uh, modalities. Talk to uh, very briefly about what pul- what happens in pulmonary rehab. Yeah, so pulmonary rehab um, is a is a scheduled exercise um, program. Um, most of the hospitals that I worked around the state um, had it three days a week for about an hour with four, uh, 10 minutes of an um, educational session. These programs are usually run by a respiratory therapist and a physical therapist. Sometimes they even have a nutritionist at, um, on site. And it's a small group exercise program, usually, well, this is pre-COVID era, but usually maybe five, six patients at at the same time. Everybody is doing different amount of exercise. It's tailored to the individual. And um, during the the um, 10-minute educational session, we usually talk about different um, aspects of living with lung disease, such as what is COPD, what are the different inhalers are do, uh, doing, um, what is a proper technique, what constitutes an emergency, what would one do when they experience an emergency, and all kinds of different... Um, do you find uh, that it helps reduce hospitalizations? 
Yes, it definitely, and there's a lot of data out in the literature that also proves that. And post-hospitalization for patients to kind of get back up to their previous um, exercise capacity, it also is very, very helpful. So a full-on pulmonary rehab program is usually a 24-session program, and then we offer maintenance programs. So once they are once the improvement in exercise capacity is achieved, you have to keep that up. Otherwise, in about six months, all the benefits wane away. So I, these are probably not available in every small hospital in Vermont, but this is another area where I would encourage patients to ask, if you have severe or even moderately severe COPD or emphysema, to ask your primary care provider, would you consider referring me to a pulmonologist and subsequently to a pulmonary rehab? Because it does seem to help. Now, let me ask you about oxygen, supplemental oxygen. Uh, at what point do you prescribe oxygen for people? So um, part of the oxygen prescription is driven by um, certain criteria that the insurance companies and Medicare set, and if one does not meet that criteria, I can prescribe the oxygen, but it will not be delivered um, or reimbursed for. So the current uh, recommendation is supplemental oxygen. If um, on the little finger clip oxygen measuring device, if the oxygen saturation is below 88% at rest or on exertion, Patients who have a condition called pulmonary hypertension, that level is up at 90%. So if, if the oxygen saturation is below 90%, then we would prescribe supplemental oxygen. And then we titrate the oxygen um, based on the patient's needs to keep their oxygen saturation above this 88 or 90% range. People are sometimes hesitant to, I think, begin oxygen because they feel it sort of makes them appear as, like an ill person, and yet it, it absolutely reduces mortality and helps people live longer and better. So I usually tell my patients, because I, I do experience this pushback, that they would say that, oh, if I start oxygen, I will never get off of it, or if I start oxygen, my lungs will just get weaker because I'm not stressing them enough, Um and uh, many other uh, reasons why people are hesitant to start oxygen. I usually tell people that they don't need the oxygen to make the lungs per se better. The oxygen is needed for other organs such as the heart and the brain and many other organs. But our steady, normal level of oxygen is crucial for um, normal cardiac or heart function. And I usually tell people that if you have no um, gas or fuel in your truck and you're just revving the engine, that's not going to make the car go any faster or it's just going to basically break down your engine. So if you're not putting in the oxygen into the system, that's not going to protect anything. If, if anything, it will make your heart work less well or eventually cause heart failure. As I said at the top, breathing is, is generally good, considered to be a good thing to do. <laughs> um, I want to skip over asthma just for a minute, and I hope we'll come back to it. But you were very involved in sleep disorders, in particular sleep apnea. Um, and that is very common and actually increasingly common as our population 
tends to gain weight. Um, talk a little bit about what is sleep apnea, how do we diagnose it, and how do we treat it? So, yeah, you're right. Obstructive sleep apnea is getting more and more prevalent um, in this country with the um, obesity epidemic, um, but it is important to note that not everybody who has sleep apnea is obese and not everybody who's obese has sleep apnea. Um, so what happens with obstructive sleep apnea is that when we fall asleep, the tissues around the neck and the jaw also fall asleep, sort of, and all the um, the mechanisms that keep the tissues away from the main airway that l- runs through the neck um, also kind of lose their tone. And so they, as we lay on our back, with the help of the gravity as well, these tissues kind of flop in, in the, uh, as we're trying to sleep and just by the sheer weight of it obstruct, mechanically obstruct the top of the airway. And because of this, people start to snore, and by the snoring they try to get those tissues out of the way, and when they get too tired to keep up with the snoring, that's when the actual obstruction would happen. And at that point, there is no air or oxygen coming to the body. It's a very strong wake-up signal for the brain, the brain wakes up for a few seconds, restores the tone, and then we start breathe again. But unfortunately, that mini, mini brain awakening fragments our sleep to the point that especially if this happens 100 or 200 times at night, and the patient would never know because the awakenings are so short-lived that they would never know about it, but it fragments the sleep enough that they wake up in the morning and just feel completely exhausted already and like they never slept, have no energy, sleepy, tired during the day, or just have mood disorders. One of the most, uh, one of the most common, uh, things in primary care that we hear is perhaps the best diagnostician is a spouse. When a spouse yeah. comes in and says, my husband or my wife, uh, I think they have apnea because I see them not only snoring, but stopping breathing and gasping numerous times in the night. That almost always uh, signals that the person probably does have apnea. But what are the formal ways we test for apnea? Well, yeah, you're right. So that's the, the best screening test is the spouse test. Most of the time I, you know, sometimes I have patients who would come in and I say, so what's going on? You know, what's bothering you? Oh, I don't have any problems, but my wife says I snore, but I think she snores. And then it goes back and forth. But a lot of the time, spouses actually now record on their phone uh, what they're hearing, and when they play it back, you know that there's a problem right away. So the formal diagnosis um, comes from doing what's called an uh, an overnight sleep study, and this can be done um, in the sleep center. That would be the gold standard and more co- most comprehensive way of diagnosing sleep disorders. There's also kind of a more expedited way of doing a home sleep study that is not as comprehensive but could perhaps diagnose severe sleep apnea in an okay way. But the the gold standard one that's done in the sleep center, the patient would come in 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 the evening and spend the whole night. Um, And for that night, they are um, fitted with all kinds of different wires, some on the head, under the eye, on the finger, around the chest, and a few around the leg. And they would be measuring brain waves, and we would be looking at sleep stages and see 
how well um, consolidated the sleep is, whether the person is getting into the REM sleep, which is kind of the most restful kind of sleep, the deep sleep. We are also looking for snoring, whether they're pausing with the breathing, what's happening to their oxygen, and what is it doing to the heart. And then we're also looking for limb movements. There are special circumstances where we can also look for seizures at night during the same test and some other um, variables as well. These are very important, if, uh, not only for the information they provide, but because the treatment is often uh paid for, predicated on the testing that you do. Now, treatments, one of them is simply weight loss. And people who do, who are overweight and who have obstructive sleep apnea, if they lose significant amounts of weight, often one of the first things that gets better is their sleep apnea. Um, Avoiding sedatives at night, including alcohol before bed, is helpful. But in terms of the actual treatment that you can offer, talk to us a little bit about that. So other than the ones that you already mentioned, there is uh, three major um, ways of treating the sleep apnea. One is um, a positive pressure machine, which most people know as a CPAP machine or kind of a more developed uh, form of that is a BiPAP machine, but they basically do the same concept, which is... um, Uh, taking regular air but giving it a little bit of extra push, then the machine hooks to a hose and the hose um, hooks to a mask that either covers the nose or the nose and the mouth. And that little bit of extra pressure to the air keeps these um, little bit more floppy tissues aside and allow the air to flow in and out nicely. So the CPAP machine tends to work for any amount of sleep apnea, from mild to moderate to severe. Really, the only difference is how much pressure it will take for the machine to overcome the resistance. For more more mild cases of sleep apnea, so um, generally indicated for mild to moderate sleep apnea, there are two other options. One is to use um, a custom-fitted dental appliance. This is usually done by... um, Uh, board-certified sleep dentist, and there is a uh, number of them in our state. Um, These appliances kind of look like the retainers that kids wear after their braces. It's something that the patient would only wear at night. It's uh, custom-made for their um, dental structures, and it basically pulls on the lower jaw forward just a tiny, tiny bit, like a few millimeters forward, and keep it um, uh, anchored forward at night, and with that, it does not allow the jaw to um, kind of flop back and obstruct the airway. That tends to work quite well for the right patient if it's meant if it's done well. Um, it sometimes takes a bit of adjustment, but once it's well adjusted, it can really nicely work. Um, and then the last one is a little bit more controversial. Is um, Ear, nose, and throat doctors do surgery on the back of the throat. For children with sleep apnea, this is definitely first-line treatment options Otherwise, uh, other than um, weight loss. Um, for children, uh, especially if they have very large tonsils, just taking out the tonsils would um, a lot of the time solve the entire sleep apnea problems. So for them, tonsillectomy is a... Uh, a great option for adults, especially with more severe sleep apnea, um, taking out the tonsils, 
taking out the uvula, kind of that midline hanging thing in the throat, and arching the throat bigger can help some. Um, for that to completely eliminate the sleep apnea is uh, few and far in between. Well, we uh, we have a caller, and I and I apologize. I may not be able to get to the caller because I do. There, we're going to run out of time, and there are a couple things I do want to talk to you briefly. Now, you mentioned at the outset that you uh, worked through the first uh, through the AIDS uh, years in the 1990s, uh, and here we are with another pan epidemic, um, COVID. Now, we're we know that COVID predominantly affects the lungs, although it can affect many other organs as well. And it produces a, a basically very severe viral pneumonia in so many cases. What have you seen so far, and what are, what can you offer when people come into the ICU with uh, with COVID pneumonia? Well, as we've all uh, healthcare providers in the state have at this point probably we all have seen um, severe cases of uh, COVID pneumonia, and sometimes it's really difficult to predict who is going to get the severe viral pneumonia and end up on a ventilator. Um, But basically what we see is that initially uh, the person is feeling more and more short of breath and then their blood oxygen is getting lower and lower. The coughing is very irritating. And uh, when we do a chest x-ray or a CAT scan, there are these large patchy infiltrates in the lung which correspond to... um, protein-rich fluid basically filling up the breathing surfaces and not allowing the oxygen um, to diffuse through the lungs. So when the patient um, gets intubated in the intensive care unit and gets on a breathing machine, then utilizing the machine's ability to create extra positive pressure to try to push the air through is one of the treatment modalities. And then... um, Prone positioning is another very important um, treatment modality in the intensive care unit, especially severely um, hypoxemic patients, um, which we've used in the past for other causes of the same ARDS pattern. But somehow with COVID patients, it really does seem to work um, a lot more um, noticeably well. One of the things we've seen with COVID is the once people get intubated, the mortality is very high, sometimes 50% or greater. Is that a simply a factor of how sick they are, or is there something about being intubated itself which is contributing to their death? So it's actually, I think that it's actually both. So when the COVID pneumonia progresses to the stage of what they call ARDS, but it's that basically that proteinaceous fluid filling up the, the breathing sacs, um, this could happen from other um, infections or other injuries to the lung as well, and they all carry a very high mortality rate in the 50-60% range. So that's not necessarily unique to COVID itself, but just for the person being intubated also carries risks of secondary pneumonia developing or blood clots or stroke or um, a host of other issues that can further increase the mortality. Yeah, the treatment of ARDS, which you mentioned, acute respiratory distress syndrome, it's usually to treat the underlying cause. Unfortunately, in COVID, we still don't have great treatments for the underlying cause, which is this virus. But we're working on it. 
Um, in the yeah. in the just the very short time we have left, I wanted to t- ask you about your missions to Honduras and to Guyana. Um, tell us a little bit about that. What what you found? What you were? How you were able to help people in those countries? So um, to me, that's one of the most rewarding parts of of uh, medicine is to do medical missions. It is really a way to kind of get back to that original feeling of why I went to medical school in the first place. It's just, it's a very, very direct care. Um, There is not a lot of academic um, stuff um, around it. It's hands-on, and you either know the answer or you don't, but there is no help whatsoever. So um, both of those places... In Honduras, um, we were in Dan Lee, which is a very small uh, village, and from there went to even smaller villages each day. And the criteria to pick villages were that um, they had to have no medical personnel coming through the village at all for three years at least for us to be going there. So as you can imagine, um, there was an incredible need and um, and just really, really um severe diseases. And then in Guyana, um, the medical clinic, which is just kind of a loose term, um, is up on an offshoot of um, of the Amazon River, um, on one of these smaller rivers, and it's just basically a structure of a building. Um, there are no roads, no electricity, no, um, of course, no Wi-Fi or anything like that. Um, no running water, it's all rainwater. And um, and people take their own little hand-dug-out canoes and they canoe down or up on the river to come see us because there's no other medical care throughout the entire year. And then they would bring their children and the newborns and everybody. And it's really very, very basic but very rewarding medical care where really no saying I don't know or I can't do that is really not an option because if we don't do it then nobody else will well as we uh, as we conclude I think the uh, if I look at the pattern of your life thus far it's been one of uh, taking chances and and new uh, coming to the United States I'm sure it was not easy going through the very challenging residency and uh, training that and specialty training you went through. And we are so grateful that you've come to Vermont, uh, and we're specifically grateful at Rutland Regional Medical Center to have you there now. Dr. Veronica Yadlovsky, thank you so much. Thank you. And I want to uh, invite all of you to join me next week. We're going to be talking about chronic pain, which is so many people <clears throat> suffer from. And uh, I hope to talk to you then. Until then, please be kind to yourselves and be kind to others. with Dr. Lewis Myers, brought to you in part by AgeWell Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. 
Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence. Retirement living the way it's meant to be. Kenny Drugs and KennyDrugs.com. Employee owned and locally committed. Northfield Pharmacy. Pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. NorthfieldPharmacy.com. The music for this program was written and produced by Armin Bayajan.